Deep in the night, your heart fills with dread Probably a murderer who wants you dead It could be a ghost, a demon or worse Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse It's hopeless, you're doomed, you'd call a priest if you could You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood I'm gonna kill you Hello and welcome to another edition of Freaky Friday Today is Friday, April 7th And it's a very special Freaky Friday, Christy, for many reasons Chief among them is that (laughs) it's our first Freaky Friday with a guest Very, very excited for this This is a new thing we're gonna start doing and it's just going to be at the end one story that we get from some sort of a celebrity guest either a fellow podcaster perhaps an actor a musician someone in the entertainment industry that is going to share their own freaky friday with us and we did our first interview last night and it was I am in love with our guest. I also love our guest. Uh, We'll get to her introduction at the end, but like Christy said, that'll be your sixth and final Freaky Friday story. It's Vicky Petraeus, the host and creator of the Frankston Murders podcast, which is a Case Files Presents podcast. So that is our, uh, our last story today, but we have five others that Christy has lined up for you all as well. But in addition to our our premiere of our new segment, it's also the day that our second leg of tour tickets are on sale. Yay! And they're up and running. Everything's up and running except Pittsburgh. It might be a laggard. We might need some days on Pittsburgh, but just hang in there. Stick around on our Patreon. That'll be the first place that they're announced. But if you're in Boston, Brooklyn, Washington, D.C., Detroit, Columbus... Your tickets are on sale at sinisterhood.com slash live shows. We are coming to see y'all. We got our full moon energy tour ready. Been adding stuff to the script. We've been uh, thinking new bits, thinking of new stuff to bring you. And Christy, <laughs> your bestie. Well, I, bestie or lover, to be D. <laughs> or pesty, because he is pesty. You. Yes. Pester. McGruff the crime dog, who has taken a liking to me, yeah. has insisted that he come on tour now. So he will be there. And if you aren't familiar with the relationship that he and I have developed, then you can check out our most recent mini-sode. This is all about McGruff the crime dog and how he came to be, the figure he is, and the 80s with you know his campaign to keep the children safe but now he's got another agenda and it's trying to get in my pants (laughs) that's what it sounds like he's uh my mom came over and visited and they had a run-in and uh she said Uh she said i'll jerk a knot in your tail do you even have a tail and he was kind of offended sad (laughs) uh but i think we're working on some travel clothes for him so he'll go on tour with us as well so he won't be on stage the whole time but he may make an appearance um Mm -hmm. either during the show or in the live q a he'll pop up here and there but uh, if you want to get tickets to any of those, we're also coming to Denver and Salt Lake City in the next few weeks. We'll be there Denver on the 19th of April and Salt Lake on the 20th. And then we're going to be in Austin, Texas on April 27th and Houston on May 3rd. So sinisterhood.com slash live shows where we can hang out in, in person. Come to the Q&A and chat. We have another announcement as well. Yes. We have been nominated for a Webby Award for best comedy podcast and we would love it if 
all of you could go and vote for us. The Academy Award is decided upon from the Academy, but the People's Choice Award, it's up to all of you to vote. And we are lined up against some heavy hitters, which is an honor. Also, we need some votes. <laughs> we need some votes because it's uh, pretty much amazing celebrities. Like well, Stephen Colbert. Stephen you know, Colbert. He's pretty great. Dulce Sloan and Josh Johnson on their podcast, which is on The Daily Show, Comedy Bang Bang, Latinos Out Loud. So us being in a lineup with these other phenomenal shows. Yeah. For the People's Voice Award, it's your voice. So go to SinisterHood.com slash Webby's, W-E-B-B-Y-S. And that's just a quick link and it'll send you right over to where you need to vote. Or if you're on our social media, you can see it. But you vote now through April 20th at 1159 Pacific. So please go and vote and see what maybe we'll beat Stephen Colbert. <laughs> Would that be if we beat Stephen Colbert? Because we get a five word speech. Yeah. So if we beat everybody and win, we'll let you guys choose our five words. I think <laughs> because it's the, if it's the people's choice, it's the people's voice. Y'all mm -hmm. can get us to say, and we're going to say it. And not I can't wait to hear what those five words would be. Okay. I've got some ideas of what a couple of them might. And then, um, that'll be the only one we ever win. Cause we'll probably get banned after yeah, whatever sure. our five sentence, uh, thank you. Acceptance speeches, five word. <laughs> Everyone's like, did you just go up there and yell out, eat my shorts, jabronis? <laughs> nope, out. And we're like, yeah, that's what everybody voted for us to say. So that's what we said. Did you just go up there and yell, finger bang, finger bang, yay? And we're like, yeah, <laughs> that it was five. Or is it one? Is finger bang hyphenated? We don't know. <laughs> yeah, we have to ask the judges and they'll be like, oh, you actually need to go, ma'am. And <laughs> Take your dog puppet with you. Get out of here. So, yeah. Sinister oh, has, yeah. It's yeah, going to be McGruff. I'll bring, him. I'll bring him. We'll put him in a full <laughs> He'll tuxedo. He'll get the speech. Yeah. <laughs> He's going to have a tiny tux. <laughs> put him in a tuxedo. Sinisterhead.com slash Webbies. Yeah. Uh, it's unlikely that we'll ever beat Stephen Colbert. But with your help, maybe we will. Perhaps and if we, we do, can. We'll bring you along with us and let you uh, give our speech. Thank you. Well, Christy has lined up a wonderful, our story sommelier, a wonderful lineup leading us into Vicky's Freaky Friday story, and we chat with her about the Frankston Murders podcast. But before that, we've got some of your tales that you've written in with. Absolutely. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get freaky. Well, this first one is from Amanda, and it is called College Murderer Encounter. Hello. First, I want to say that my five-year-old constantly asks to listen to talking with the ghost, referring to the ghost in your logo. I'm raising another true crime addict, apparently. Now to the story. In the fall of 2005, I was a freshman at BWMC in Baltimore, Maryland. Facebook was relatively new, and my parents were way overprotective. So I may have gone a little nuts that first semester in terms of social media and other things. It wasn't uncommon to get friend requests from people at your college that you may not know super well, but have mutual friends with or classes with. This happened to me with a guy in my Bio 100 class, which had like 200 people in it. I had seen him around campus, but had never actually talked to him. Being super naive, I accepted the friend request. I remember he asked me several times over the next few weeks to come to his on-campus apartment and that he'd cook me dinner. For some reason, my gut told me not to go, and I actually listened. Around that same time, one of the girls in my bio lab group, maybe 15 to 20 people, mentioned that she saw that we had him as a mutual friend on Facebook, 
and warned me to stay away. She said he was super creepy. She was two years older than me. So between her gut and mine, I felt confident that my gut was right. I don't remember exactly how, but I managed to get him to stop contacting me via messenger. And the few times I managed to see him from a distance on campus, I was able to duck and run. In December of 2005, a single mother named Josie Brown went missing after meeting a guy on MySpace and then going on a date with him. When originally questioned, the guy said he hadn't heard from her since he dropped her off at home on December 29th. Forty days later, John Gomer confessed to killing this single mother and led the police to her body in a wooded area off I-95. Yes, John was the guy from Facebook. Turns out he had met Josie on MySpace and convinced her to go on a date with him. When she changed her mind about going back to his on-campus apartment, he got angry and pulled over on I-95. He threw her phone after she attempted to speak to a friend and proceeded to beat her to death on the side of the interstate. Afterwards, he removed her teeth, jaw, nose, and fingers in an attempt to make it harder for her body to be identified. He then used her purse to take the removed parts back to his on-campus apartment. Here is the best revenge. The reason he was arrested was because his cell phone called hers while he was beating her and recorded the murder. He was convicted of her rape and murder in May of 2007. After listening to both the voicemail left on her phone during her murder and the taped confession he made to police, it took the jury less than five hours to find him guilty. To this day, I still get a knot in my stomach when I consider how close I was to having in-person interactions, let alone a potential date, with someone who committed such a horrific crime. I have two daughters, five and seven, and I fully plan on using this as an example of how dangerous the internet can be. I included some of the news articles from the trial coverage, as well as a data convict type website where John has a profile that I've come across in the years since. Major gross. Also, I cannot wait to see you in D.C. in July. I already got a hotel room as it's the weekend before my birthday, and I need some self-care time. I'm praying to get VIP tickets, but even if I don't, I'm going to be so, so happy to see my absolute favorite podcast host in person. Keeping it creepy in Maryland until then. I remember these days of early internet where it was kind of, I won't say normal, but more... I mean, people still do it, but more acceptable to be like, I don't really know you, but I've seen you around and I'm going to add you as like a way to introduce yourself. But it's so eerie when you have a a classmate come up and go, hey, listen, don't. Yeah, yeah. I remember these days too, kind of building up your friend list Mm -hmm. because everybody was just, you know, kind of starting out. So it pop up like, oh, you may know this person or you just see someone and you recognize them. And you don't think much of it because, you know, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, we're in the same class, but whatever. But kudos to that girl giving you a heads up. I love to see women helping out other women when it comes to this guy seems dangerous. So I'm just going to let you know you might want to stay away. Absolutely horrifying what happened to Josie. His interview with the police is something. Not only does he confess to it, but he then says, is this going to leave a bad mark on my record? Like, is this going to affect my future? Because I don't have any priors other than this. So is this, he calls it this incident. Is this incident going to leave a bad mark? 
Um, yeah, I think it will, you psychopath. And then the prisoninmates.com that was linked is his profile. And to say it is tone deaf would be an understatement. It is, it's quite something. Yeah, the, especially the interview, he seems just to callously disregard her as a person. You know, yeah. the the language around it of, well, how does this affect me? Well, what is this going to do for me? And then just he said, I tried to clean this stuff up I had there, like the nose, the jaw, stuff like yeah. that. And to say it in such a callous way, it's so sickening. And then you juxtapose that with his profile, which says, I would like to write someone who's open-minded about my situation. And it's like, you show no fucking remorse whatsoever. No. And there was one line that especially stuck out to me. I am an educated, fun-loving Sagittarius, not allowing my situation to limit me or bring others down. Misery loves company, but you won't find any here. Being here gives me the opportunity to meet someone I wouldn't have normally met. You, smiley face emoji are you kidding me yeah it's it would be one thing if it was like i'm heavily remorseful for my actions i would yeah. like to make a human connection i'm trying to rehabilitate myself he seems to have no regard no and like it's happens. just not allowing my situation to limit me or bring others down it should bring others down you viciously murdered someone because they didn't want to go back to your apartment. He says in the interview with the police that he had been messaging her on MySpace and that it seemed like when he said, what's on your mind? And she said, sex. So, you know, I was getting mixed messages and I assumed we were going to go back. So then when she didn't want to, I was like, what? And she was talking to her ex when he threw her phone out of the car. Yeah, which and then that's the the twist of irony that his phone calling hers and her phone being thrown previously, he couldn't take it, mess with mm -hmm. it, delete the the voicemail or anything like that. But it gives, you know, shades of Paul Murdoch that that Snapchat video, like the last moments, there's that digital record of what yeah. happened. That's horrifying, but it's like her one last, you know, it's her voice for the last time that she's been able to help put him away. And it says on his profile he's in for life. Well, as he should be, a heinous crime, and it looked like he was stalking people before that. And Amanda, we're very glad that you listened to your gut, and that other girl in your bio lab also gave you a heads up. It's um, there's a reason our guts like this set and feel right. And kudos to you for listening to it for sure, because it's mm -hmm. very easy to ignore that, especially in the early days of of MySpace and Facebook. I think now we're all a little more leery, but back then it was like, oh, this is all new. So nobody really knew what they were doing. Right. And also having that with the foresight of the uh, classmate to see that mutual connection and go, oh, uh oh, mm -hmm. and to say something and, and, you know, not just go, well, it's not really my business, but like this guy's bad news. I'm going to mention something. Yeah. I like to see that. Well, thank you so much, Amanda, for sending that in. Sinisterhood will be right back. This next one is from Ethan, and it is called Don't Be So Quick to Judge. Hey, y'all, I'll make my gushing quick, but I just wanted to thank you guys for getting me through the pandemic and inspiring me each and every week. I decided to write in my story after hearing the Freaky Friday story about another listener's summer camp crazies. My story starts in September of 2017, the beginning of my junior year of high school. 
I'm not sure if this is a thing in other parts of the country, but here in California, particularly Stanislaus County, smack in the middle of the state, we have a tradition called sixth grade camp. In most of California, our junior high schools are only seventh through eighth grade. So sixth grade is our last year of elementary school. And as a rite of passage, the sixth graders go on a three to five day camping trip with the entire grade up to a summer camp. All of the schools in my area go to one particular camp, which primarily relies upon volunteers to be the camp counselors as they have thousands of students coming in and out of the camp nearly 365 days a year. Well, during my junior year, my best friend and I both decided we wanted to be counselors. The camp is always running low on male cabin counselors, so I was lucky enough to choose when I wanted to go. So I chose the same weekend as my best friend. The day finally came for us to go to camp and we boarded the school bus with one of the sets of students and a few other counselors. This is where I learned that I would be getting a co-counselor who was already up at the camp. I didn't question this much as I was in awe of being on the counselor side of things after having been a camp goer just five years before. After nearly a two-hour journey up into the Sierra Nevadas, we made it to the campsite, which was exactly how I remembered it from when I was a camper. This is when I met my campers and the co-counselor I had been told about. As it turned out, the reason he was already at the camp instead of traveling up with the rest of us was because this was his seventh week volunteering in a row. By all accounts, this was record-breaking, as no other counselors had stayed for more than two sets of campers. Immediately, my judgmental teenage brain labeled him a creep, a weirdo, someone to ridicule with my best friend who was along with me. Throughout our entire time there as counselors, I had this persisting judgment of him. Why had this grown 20-something-year-old with a full beard, and as a 16-year-old, that made me view him like 50, decided to stay at a camp for 6th graders? Nothing too notable happened, aside from my group of 6th grade boys insisting on me telling them a bedtime story every night because it made them feel less scared. I know, adorable. And eventually our time was up and it was time to head home. We said goodbye to our campers and the forest and headed back down into the valley where we live. And of course, my co-counselor was volunteering for another week. Once home, my best friend and I made a whole show of telling our friends every juicy detail of our trip and especially made a point to tell them just how ghoulish we found my co-counselor. Our junior year continued as normal and winter slowly descended upon us. It was early December when a familiar name made a startling return into our lives. My best friend sent me a news article about a man being assaulted in our town's local park and being hospitalized. It was my co-counselor. Apparently sometime after our time at camp, he eventually decided to come home and pursue a job out of state. Before leaving, he was hanging out with his girlfriend at a park when four people got out of a van and beat him to the point of hospitalization and eventually death, a robbery gone wrong that resulted in him losing his life. He was 21 when this happened, younger than I am now, and it haunts me to this day. Instead of judging him for volunteering for his community, I should have seen him for the human being he was, a young adult who very likely just needed a safe, stable place to sleep and three full meals provided daily, which being a camp counselor provided. Sure, it might not have been the most convenient route, but maybe if people weren't so quick to judge, he wouldn't have felt pressured to leave the camp and would still be alive today. This is one of the moments where I might not have said or done anything directly to influence him, 
but I can't help but feel so much remorse over what happened to him. In a better world, he could have been a counselor without judgment or sat at a park without fear of assault or death. In a better world, your podcast would be devoted to the spooky cases because true crime wouldn't exist. I know I'm definitely not a hero in this story, but I think stories like this are necessary to tell. That way, maybe someone else can learn from them and we'll all be better off for it. I've linked some stories about his case below. Well, I wanted to include this one because it's not every day that you say, hey, I was wrong. I was wrong for judging someone so quickly because it's hard to admit that, that, you know, that we're wrong, especially when the outcome is so horrific. So Ethan, I commend you for owning up to the Jew. We're quick to judge and that wasn't right. And you were correct that sharing stories like this, like we talk all the time about the power of storytelling and sharing it, perhaps someone else will hear this and it will resonate with them. Right. Yeah. And you can just say I was 16. It doesn't make it right. But don't be too hard on yourself. But understanding that when you see somebody doing good, absent any other, you know, there was no indication that he was there for any other reason other than, like you said, he was having a good time. He liked everybody. He needed a place to stay. Uh, And you cannot predict something like this. It is heinous what happened to him in the links that Ethan provided us. It seems like this was kind of a roving band of two adults and then a 15 and 16 year old that were going around doing these robberies in parks. And the first two, they kind of roughed people up. But then in this case, the victim, his name was Cameron, that he passed away at the young age of 21. They had attacked him with a metal baseball bat and had been very violent. And the main perpetrator's mother actually came forward and said, my son should not have been out on the streets. He was extremely violent. I'm sorry for he's had these issues his whole life. I wish that he would have been, you know, better, uh, I guess, incarcerated or, you know, taken care of by the judicial system. So it's really sad all around when you see even the perpetrator's families coming out and going, oh, my God, this was a tragedy that. Yeah. And admitting their mistakes and, and, you know, not helping him the way he should have been helped. So there's nothing we can do to change the past. All we can do is learn from it and apply that to being better in the future. So thank you so much, Ethan, for sharing that. Well, this next one is from Maggie and the subject line is ghosty friends encounters. Hi ladies coming at you from the land of Mothman, West Virginia. Longtime listener and Patreon supporter. Love your content and how radiant you both are. You two make my walk to class bearable, although I probably catch side eyes laughing to myself on the way. Anyhow, here's my tale. Since I was very little, I've been sensitive to paranormal happenings. Not only is this a trait on my father's side of the family, but I believe a near-death experience I had increased my sensitivity. When I was four, I was admitted to the ICU for pneumonia, with the primary reasoning being monitoring due to a family history of asthma. However, not long into my stay, as my mom tells it, I became very fussy due to intense chest discomfort. Due to this, while my mom was out of the room, my attending nurse pushed lidocaine directly into my IV, stopping my heart. The crash cart and a whole team came rushing in and were able to restart my heart, but I was technically dead for a minute there. As such, I've had mostly just feelings regarding the paranormal my whole life, like a weird pressure in my chest or almost psychic knowing of a person or object. 
My siblings and I have always had an aversion to one of the guest rooms in my grandparents' house we call the Blue Room. Ever since we were little, we've had nightmares regarding the room, such as aliens coming down from the attic access point that sits above the canopy bed. On one visit, I drew the short straw of staying in the room, so, in retaliation, I stayed up late watching friends on my phone. I was laying on my right side, a pillow supporting my phone, when above the pillow, I saw a man walk straight along the side of the bed and through the door. I slept in the extra bunk in my brother's room that night. The next day, I recounted the story to my grandfather and parents. My grandfather just blinked and stared at me quizzically. How tall do you think the man was? He asked. An odd question. Maybe under six foot? His head was level with the canopy on the bed, I think. Why? Sounds like it was your great-grandfather. His uniform is in that closet. He had asked because the canopy bed frame had been my great-grandparents. Before this, I didn't know much about my great-grandfather besides the fact that he was an Air Force pilot in World War II who died in a plane crash. He left a widow and a 12-year-old boy and a 7-year-old, my grandmother, fatherless. I've since learned that he was flying to settle a land dispute between two ranchers, giving up his seat on the first flight out to a young man going home to see his ill mother. But it was the second plane that crashed. It took them almost two weeks to find the crash site. Although that encounter scared the shit out of me when it happened, my siblings and I no longer fear the Blue Room or have nightmares when we stay in it. Since then, we've finally gotten my grandmother to talk about her father more and work through some of the trauma of losing her father so young and the not-so-great ways that her brother and mother used his death to manipulate her and others. Thank you two so much for reading. Keep it freaky, Maggie. Well, I'm not a nurse, and I don't know about this stuff, so I don't know if that's common practice to push lidocaine into an IV. I I have no idea, but I do know that seeing your kid in the hospital and they are technically dead and all those nurses with the crash carts, worst feeling ever, just sitting there hoping they come back. Thank goodness that you did. But you came back with something you didn't you didn't have before. You didn't leave with. Yeah. No. Yeah. But it's kind of cool that you came back with that. <laughs> right. I mean, if you have to go through that, at least you get a right? bonus power when you come back. The regular grown up ICU is scary and nerve wracking enough. The kids ICU on top of that and then having to respond to a code, a coding patient in a kid's ICU, I cannot imagine. So what a harrowing thing for your parents to go through. And then to, you have now little Maggie's like, is that grandpa in the corner? <laughs> like great grandpa. But that's cool that, you know, maybe he's, he feels a connection to that uniform to something that is meaningful to him. And he's just, yeah. Walking around, checking on things and making sure y'all are safe and probably feels, feels guilty. He gave up his seat for that young man. Yeah. I feel like we've done another story where someone also gave up their seat and then the flight that they took ended up crashing. And it's so sliding doors moment we talk about, but I mean, on the other hand, the guy that was going to home to see his ill mother has the opposite side of that story of, right. I almost, I was a step away from dying that day and a nice man gave up his seat so I could get home faster to see my mom. So out of an act of kindness came something tragic. I hope, though, that 
you finding peace in that room, maybe it means that he's finding some peace in that room as well. Right. No, I think so. Well, thank you very much, Maggie, for sending that in. Sinister Hood will be right back. This next one is from Megan, and the subject line is Creepy Airbnb in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Hey, y'all. I heard about the creepy Airbnb story and had to write mine in immediately. I went to U of A in Fayetteville, graduated in 2016. My friend group reunited there fairly often, and the summer of 2018, I wanted to bring my boyfriend, an Aggie, and my eventual husband, to see Faye for the first time since it's so gorgeous. We picked a cute little Airbnb off of one of the main roads through town. Having gone to school there, I knew exactly where this place was. Although off a main road, the houses in Fayetteville can be fairly spread out and have woods all around them. It looked cute, quiet, and eclectic, but boy, when we pulled up, were we in for a rude awakening. The house was pink like the pictures, but that's about all it was like the pictures. The eclecticness that came across in the pics was actually just a hoarder's dream on the front lawn. Dozens upon dozens of lawn decorations strewn about, weird model planes, and I think one of them had a swastika on the side, what looked like scrap metal, etc., We both looked at each other like, I don't like this at all. Right before I opened the front door, I looked to my right and there were two person-sized holes dug in the yard. Huh. Okay. Alarms were blazing on fully now, but I was broke and I didn't want to have to rebook and I didn't want my boyfriend's first time in town to start off so negatively, so I just tried to press onward. Well, we go inside and immediately what do we see? You guessed it, a huge vintage doll collection. All of them angled toward the front door, staring. We wandered to find the bedrooms, and we both just looked at each other, waiting for the other to say what we know we were both thinking. When we reached the main bedroom, there were dozens of family pictures on the dresser, all facing the bed. We kept walking around for a minute. We both felt like we were intruding and like someone had just been there before us couldn't stop that feeling that gets you rubbing the back of your neck. The last straw? The kitchen. We looked up to see what we thought was a skylight, but it wasn't. It was a loft of sorts. It looked almost carved out of the concrete and stone. No stairs to it. I saw a ladder next to me and put two and two together. Not daring to go up there, I tried to crane my neck to see any more details about the cubby. All I could see, besides a small window, were a few kids' toys and crude crayon drawings on the walls. We both looked at each other, and Scooby slash Shaggy ran our butts out of there. We were so beyond spooked. I wish I had taken pictures, but luckily, Airbnb gave us a full refund, and we were able to stay at a nice new condo right in the middle of town instead. Nice and safe, where no witch of the woods could bury us in her yard or hold us hostage in a haunted child cave. Love y'all. Keep it creepy. Megan. Okay, well, you know what those drawings are, right? It's the dolls. Those (laughs) dolls. Those dolls climb up that ladder and use their tiny little porcelain hands. And they draw pictures of the victims of the people that they're going to bury in the yard? Yeah, yeah. And then they get together and get tiny, probably, maybe they just also use their hands, check those porcelain hands for dirt, and they just... They just dig and scoop in the front yard. Yeah. All of them out there at night together. We've been waiting for you. God bless. Oh, my God. 
When you I open hate it. this. Everything, <laughs> I'm like, I got the heebie-jeebies just thinking about it. Why would anyone think this is a home that they should rent out on Airbnb? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Unless you haunt, unless you rent it out with the caveat of stay in our creepy haunted dollhouse. Right. And yeah. like people know, but don't be like fun, eclectic, cozy cottage near Fayetteville. It's like, no, man, that's misleading. And yeah, Airbnb better give you a refund. Otherwise, you can get a refund from the insurance company when I burn this bitch down because I'm <laughs> not staying in here because it is freaking cursed. No. I have never been to an Airbnb where there were personal pictures out no that is the thing because we talked about the airbnb i stayed in maine the only thing personal was that we found there was a a framed photo of a certificate that the guys i think it turned out it was his brother had won some like student film contest in the 90s and i looked it up on youtube and i found the student film but that was the only thing identifying i've never stayed in the airbnb where there's Mm -mm. like family photos no in fact that's why they always have the locked room that we've talked about We don't like a locked room, but that's where you put all your dolls and your photos so it doesn't feel like someone was just there before you walked in. You're not trying to stay at a stranger's home. You're trying to stay at a home in a neighborhood where you can feel like you're part of it all, but you also don't want to be reminded every day that like, oh yeah, this is someone else's actual house. But if they have their devil doll collection or what, here's the thing. Even if it's not sinister and there's just an open hole in the ceiling of the kitchen and the kids are supposed to just hang out in there with a ladder that's not attached to the wall or anything. Crawl up into the concrete loft, kids, and then hope you don't tumble down into the stove. Doesn't seem safe whatsoever. How did your son fall into a pot of stew? He was in the fun cubby. In the what? (laughs) Listen, we've got a fun cubby in our kitchen. That's That's where they have fun. It's in the ceiling. Did its house come with it? No, we we carved it out of the stone up there. And then, you know, they draw on the walls and stuff. With their dolls. (laughs) Their tiny hands. She's like, here's my son. Ma'am, that's a doll. He's (laughs) my boy. My boy (laughs) fell in the stew pot. He was playing upstairs. Yeah, that is horrible and chaotic. Megan, you did the right thing. And the Scooby Shaggy run. I can imagine that. Where it's like, and then you run out. You can't stay. You made the right call. Thousand percent. Yeah. You called it. Well, thank you very much, Megan, and uh, good good for you for getting out of there. But if you have the Airbnb listing, send it to us. Cause yeah, please. Uh, yeah, you got. I mean, I get it because I'd probably be so freaked out. I'd also not think to take pictures. But you got to take a second to snap some pics I'm when it's make- this when it's this weird. You got to <laughs> take a second to snap some pics. I'm going to make a request to my sister and our other best friend Misty to write. The time that Misty and that we took Misty to this Airbnb when she was pregnant is kind of like a bestie trip, and there was like rusted, sharp objects like on the wall. It was like freaky. She to this day she she talks us and like makes fun of us about it. But she, I'll have them do a little collaborative um, and have them submit their story to Freaky Friday because the the two of them tell it even better than I do. But it was a quite a time <laughs> but it's an airbnb where you're like it looks so cute it's so rustic and yeah. then you get there and you're like oh that's a rusted sickle on the wall it's like it's not yeah it's not rustic it's straight up rusted <laughs> if i recall misty also when you shannon and misty went to another airbnb there was not a carbon monoxide detector present <laughs> so she called her husband to come bring one because she is a, a safe person 
The thing and I about, respect it. Oh my gosh. Since I've known Missy since I was 18 she, um, and she's been best friends with my brother-in-law forever. And a person like that where you go, thank you, you have made my life better in so many different ways and things like that where it's like, and it was, we were happy to be pretty close to the house and I called Paris actually. She's like, there's no carbon monoxide. And it wasn't- The fact that she noticed that too She noticed something. it. And it was an older house like in East Dallas. It was like, it's the, it was like a, like a cutesy Airbnb off of kind of lower Greenville, but it was probably built in the thirties, but it's been wasn't updated. Wasn't it nineties, Saved by yeah, the Bell thing? Yeah, it was like nineties. Yeah. <laughs> and it, so it's because it's older, it doesn't have to, but they tell you that it doesn't. And so I called Paris, he wasn't very far. And I was like this is gonna sound weird can you bring <laughs> straws because i forgot the paper straws and also can you bring the uh, portable carbon monoxide detector <laughs> but it keeps us safe so like i said there's people that you're like you're fucking welcome i told you about that we could have died in the night and we didn't that's true it's we a live. silent killer so you need <laughs> somebody live. like that looking out for you all the time oh uh, well thank you megan sinisterhood we'll be right back this next one is from jesse and the subject line is the time I almost shit my pants and probably <laughs> ruined a lot of people's brunch. Hey, ladies, I love your show. You two are great. And your Patreon subscription was one of the best Christmas gifts ever. I'm not positive it wasn't a gift for my wife as much as me. We listen to you guys all the way from Arkansas to Florida and back. Anyway, here is my somewhat funny yet cautionary tale. Picture it. Rural Arkansas, old highways and small towns. Back in the mid-90s when I was young and cool, a group of us went out for a night of dancing and drinking. Heavy emphasis on the drinking. Unfortunately, I told my roommate I would take her to work the next day. We lived in Little Rock, and her job was in Pine Bluff, about 45-ish minutes apart. When I got up, I had the worst hangover, but I got my shit together like a hero and took her to work. About 30 minutes into the drive, I started feeling it. You know that feeling you get after you go out drinking... You hear the whale song coming from your stomach, and then the pressure sets in. You're thinking, God, please let this come up and not go down. But you know, that isn't how this is going to go. So I drop my friend off and decide I'm going to have to go to the bathroom before I get home. I thought if I went the back way instead of the freeway, I'd come across a mom and pop type convenience store or something quicker. Well, it was a Sunday in rural Arkansas, and there wasn't jack crap open. Pun intended. I drove for 20 minutes and hadn't come across anything until there it was, my savior, a little gas station. It was old and a bit run down looking, but I was desperate. The whales were getting louder and louder, and the shit was about to go down, literally. So I pull up, go into the store as fast as I could, my cheeks clenched. I immediately felt like something was off, but I hadn't heard any banjos yet, and I was desperate, so I continued. Two guys were standing at the counter. One working, and the other is just standing around with his mouth open. I asked where the bathroom was. Should have known by the look of the place that it wouldn't be inside the store. They pointed me to the side of the building it was on, and I headed in that direction. It was a freaking shed. An old addition to the side of the building with dirt floors and crap laying all around the shed. I took a couple of steps in, thought to myself, I'll shit right in my car and sit in it the rest of the way home before I go any further. At that point, I turned around and saw Mouth Breather standing in the doorway. There wasn't any reason for him to be there. I immediately freaked out inside and just took off toward the door. Luckily for both of us, he moved and let me out of there without trying to stop me. Pretty sure he would have gotten way more than he was after if he had stopped me. I got in my car and got the heck out of there. I'm not sure what that guy's plans were. 
I'm guessing he was probably waiting on me to get in the bathroom in a vulnerable position. I'm pretty sure when he got close enough, he would have changed his mind. Anyway, I get back on the road, and the next stop was a Waffle House. At that point, I knew nothing would be easily accessible between there and home, so I pulled in. <clears throat> Y'all, I blew that bathroom up. I mean, scattered, smothered, and covered it. I was easily in there for 20 plus minutes. And the bathroom door, that little swinging door, weren't doing anything to keep the smell out of the dining room. It was a Sunday, late in the morning, and that place was packed. Those good people did nothing to deserve the unholiness I unleashed, but there wasn't any stopping it. I felt bad as I left there with my head hung low and all those people glaring at me, but I felt so much better I could not have cared less. So, moral of the story is always trust your gut, even if it's being actively hostile, and always carry toilet paper in your car because shitting on the side of the road is better than being assaulted or ruining some nice folks waffles and hash browns. God damn. <laughs> Fuck. What a I time. laughed out loud yes, when I read do. this the first time. I laughed out loud again hearing it. <laughs> if you are not familiar with Waffle House, the uh the hash browns you can get scattered smothered and covered that's like a thing on the menu it means like (laughs) either mushroom or cheese it's whole thing so that's a very funny joke i just got to point out that that's a very funny joke in case you don't know what that means bow down give jesse a round of applause because she put that in there it was killer yeah it was very good uh also i love um he's just (laughs) mouth open it's a very <laughs> southern thing to say but 100 i would shit in my car before i shit in this dirt shed which you know that that oh, toilet is like out of freaking train spotting just the nastiest oh. thing you've ever seen in your life or it's just like a bucket yeah it could be like a five gallon bucket and he's like yeah. are you done with are you done with the bucket i want to take it back in with me and you're like oh <laughs> god it's worse yeah it's and worse. why are you standing there too i hate it i keep mm-hmm. a roll of bounty paper towels in the trunk of my car smart you just never know i mean you, you never know one time when we were on a road trip for our, our honeymoon paris cracked a can of um La Colombe mocha mm-hmm. latte and he was wearing white basketball shorts all down his pants he looked like he, he looked like he should have smelled it smelled <laughs> delightful it smelled like coffee but i was like oh thank god i have these in the car because it's just it's absorbent but if you're on the side of the road and you need to just go which i've also done off the side of the highway driving from i think from st louis to chicago because it was long one of those long stretches of prairie midwestern lands with like nothing for miles and as miles. an adult Oh, yeah, yeah. I was driving, too, and my ex at the time was, like, sleeping, and I just, like, pulled over, and I just, like, <laughs> was going, and then a fucking, I had pulled my pants up. I had just desecrated the side of the road and covered it with, like, I had to have enough paper to get the job done, but I wasn't trying to, like, it's, I feel like it's, like, biodegradable. I wasn't trying to ruin the environment, but anyway, so I made a nice little pile and everything, and then I'm, like, walking back up to the road, and a fucking state trooper pulls over. Oh, no! like, is everything all right, ma'am? And then, of course, my ex wakes up in the passenger seat and is like, why are we stopped? 
Did we get pulled <laughs> Why over? Why is there a state trooper? <laughs> what is happening? And I just kind of like talked to him and was like, oh, no, it's fine. I was like, oh, I just need to stretch my legs. Like my boyfriend's sleeping. I was like, and I was just like, you know, we're in college. We're taking a little road trip. And he was like, okay, well, this is, you know, I just want to make sure you weren't having any car trouble because there's nothing really around or whatever. I was like, yeah, yeah, no, that's all. Please don't walk any closer to the car. Oh, don't take man. a big It's fine. You're good. You're good. Yeah. Dang. away. So if I was seconds earlier, he would have caught me just full pants down on the side <laughs> of the road. It was daytime too. It was daytime. Hey, when you got to go, you got to go. What, what's the alternative here? Right? So but I, we've yeah. all been there, Jesse, that whale song. You're not wrong. Oh man. The sounds of the whales. Yeah. They're coming. They're through. coming for you. Well, thank, thank you, you Jesse. Jesse, for that laugh and cautionary tale. For sure. Sinisterhood will be right back. Well, for our final story, we have our guest Freaky Friday story, and we are joined by Vicki Petratus. Vicki is a best-selling, award-winning true crime author with 20 years' experience at her craft. She's written dozens of books throughout her career, including her book about Frankston serial killer Paul Denyer, which has become a classic in the true crime genre. She is incredible. Vicky and the team at Case File, a true crime podcast, created the Frankston Murders podcast, which uncovers new material and new victims in the 1993 case. And it includes Vicky's interviews with prison guards, police officers, family members, and people caught in the periphery of this Australian serial killer in the very small town. And the Frankston Murders is currently the number one podcast in Australia, and it's bringing attention to this case just as its perpetrator has asked the courts to be released on parole. It's also the number one podcast in my house right now because I am currently binging it. It is phenomenal. Of course, it's from Case File, which we all know is sets the standard of fantastic true crime coverage. But Vicky, as you'll hear in her Freaky Friday story, has a firsthand connection to this case. So we discuss a little bit about the case her Freaky Friday story, just her career as a true crime author. And we think you all will find it uh, incredibly fascinating because we did. We, uh, She set the standard. I mean, it's our first oh interview. Oh, my gosh. I was she, nervous. I'm not going to lie. I was nervous. And she's you, you, amazing. She is so, such a calming presence where I could have talked to her for hours. I, to I told you after we stopped, I said, I've been wanting to go to Australia, but now I've got to go to Australia. <laughs> One best accents out there. She also commented on ours. So she, she has family, I believe, from Texas. And she said it re reminded her of them. But she is absolutely lovely. A delight to speak with. She has done so much for bringing. She has done so much for bringing that ethical storytelling to the true crime genre. She's a fabulous writer, a fabulous speaker. We just, we fell in love with her. And 100% y'all are going to like everything you're about to hear. Yeah, we can't wait. And, and uh, we'll tell you again, but definitely check out the Frankston murders wherever you get your podcasts. And now check out our interview with Vicki. Well, we are here with Vicky Petraeus. Hello, How are you, Vicky? I'm excellent. Um, all the way over in Australia. <laughs> I know. What time is it where you are? Uh, so it's 11 o'clock in the morning here. So it's very civilized. <laughs> it's eight o'clock here. But so yes, when I was leaving, I told my daughter, I'm going to go talk to someone on the computer that's in Australia and it's the afternoon over there. And she was very intrigued by the whole thing. <laughs> 
It's like tomorrow there. So I hope uh, yeah, I think she did a good say, day. Is it tomorrow there? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's today, but earlier. No, it's definitely Thursday here. So Thursday, 11 it's o'clock. No, it's in Thursday morning. there. Okay. All right. And I got to tell you, if you want a prediction, Thursday's looking pretty good. Okay, awesome. good. Thank you. Yes. Thank we you. always love messages from the future. Perfect. Well, we're so glad to have you. We were just saying right before we hit record, we were listening to your podcast, The mm-hmm. Frankston Murders. And congratulations. I saw you're the number one podcast in Australia. It is. Yeah, it hit the charts. Like it, it came out on Thursday morning and by Saturday morning it was number one on the Apple podcast wow. charts in the country. It's it's phenomenal. I, you know. That's you incredible. Hear it, you can hear why whenever you listen to it because it's such mm-hmm. a compelling story and so timely. For our listeners who may not be familiar, can you give like a brief rundown of kind of how you would encapsulate the case? Yeah, so back in 1993, so 30 years ago, um, I lived in a suburb called Seaford, which is one down from Frankston, and I was um, doing ride-alongs with the police, riding, w- working on different stories, and uh, we had a serial killer. Now, I know America has quite a- a- an expanded history of serial killers, but Australia we just haven't had that phenomenon here really you know a couple but uh so the, so young women were being murdered in the area that i lived in and it was um just so frightening and everybody in the community felt really connected everybody felt scared everybody was locking their doors and um and i, I guess being a writer in the area i felt really compelled to write the book no, definitely. And I, I bet being, you know, around with the police officers at that time and watching their response to something that is so out of the ordinary that almost you would only see on TV, you know, on the news from coming from some other country, having the, the brutality and especially the listening to the early stages of his crime, the ramp up into what eventually turns to murder. But you can see that he's escalating mm-hmm. as he's going through the crimes and the importance of telling not just his story entirely, but telling the how he started and then where he ended up and where he is now, which he's asked for parole. Is that correct? Yeah. So when he went to trial, he pleaded guilty and he got uh, three life sentences. The judge said to him that you know, he was only 21, as you would know from serial killers in America, they are often young. So I think our law, mm-hmm. I think you can give a seasoned criminal a life sentence and then nobody says a word, but you give a 21-year-old a life sentence and that could effectively be a 60-year sentence, which really don't exist in Australia. So we don't have that mm. you're never getting out kind of thing. And um, so he got a life sentence. He appealed within about a week of getting that life sentence and he was wow. granted on a point of law, he was granted a 30-year minimum sentence, which means that he can now apply for parole. And of course, that 30 years is up and he has applied for parole. So something that seemed a long, long way away and something that we didn't have to yeah. worry about all of a sudden is on our doorstep. And so we, uh, when I say we, I mean the families and friends of the girls, uh, we're kind of banding together and doing whatever we can, including the podcast, to say to the world, please don't let him out, and especially the parole board. With podcasts that we've covered, you know, Kristen Smart, The Case in America with Your Own Backyard, or Phoebe's Fall with The Case mm-hmm. of Phoebe Hanstruck in, actually, are, aren't you in Melbourne? Yeah, yeah. Is that where you're at? 
Yep. Mm-hmm. And so you see the power that the storytelling has where it isn't just, uh, well, it's compelling to listen to, but it's the victim's family gets to have their say, but that also you can move the needle on things that are political or you know something like this, where it's a matter of public safety that you can hopefully make an impact and have citizens that otherwise wouldn't be engaged in this mm-hmm. possible, you know, the parole of this possible killer say, no, no, we live in this neighborhood. We don't want him out. We don't want him in, in our streets. An imminent threat too. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And I think what the podcast did in a big way, and I didn't understand this until I did the podcast, but when I put a community call out and said, if you've had an encounter, if you had an interaction, please get in touch because I want this to be a community story. And I just didn't realise how many people out there that he had followed and stalked and Mm. had these encounters with him that they never forgot. And I don't know that we'll and, – and my my podcast I think would be the tip of the iceberg. We don't know how many people were affected, but, gee, there's a lot. And they're still getting in touch with me as of yesterday. Mm-hmm. I'm still getting people say, hey, he pulled up next to me in his car and he tried to get me into his car and I ran. And this person yesterday was a 14-year-old boy. So I think wow. as – Someone today rang me and congratulated me on the podcast and said, you realise that you're a social historian? And I went, no, okay, I am now. <laughs> but but really, <laughs> if, um, if a 14-year-old boy, if I interview him and record him, that I'm still building the story that he's, he, maybe he's not just targeting women, maybe that was just luck on yeah. his part, but maybe he's, he's targeting anybody. Yeah. Well, Tether and I talk a lot about the power of storytelling and on our Freaky Friday episodes, especially we hear from listeners all the time of the same thing happened to me or I had suppressed this memory and then I heard another person's story and it brought it back up. And so it's kind of become this community of um, people really leaning on each other and, and feeling like a sense of community because they have shared experiences, which is, I think, what your podcast is doing too. Now that some people have come forward, just it it encourages and makes others feel braver because they know that they have a safe space with you to come forward and say and say something. And if your podcast is the tip of the iceberg, then I hope you keep going because you're incredible and the story needs to continue to be told. But don't you think you would, you too would get this as well, that podcasters, we're very approachable. And I think people Mm -hmm. that have said to me, you know, I tried to take this story to the police or I rang Crime Stoppers, which is a hotline here, and no one ever got back to me. Whereas when they get in touch with a podcaster, they get to tell their story. And I think that's our Mm -hmm. power is that we just listen to people uh, where they might not get an audience anywhere else. Um, that's a beautifully put. Absolutely. We hear a lot that I feel like you guys are my best friends. You know, I know we've never met, but, you know, especially with COVID, you've been in my ears for so many years and I feel so close to you. And like, I can tell you stuff in the emails and DMs we've mm-hmm. received of just the most heartfelt uh, emotions and confessions. And it's really incredible. So I do like to think that we're approachable and that we're seeing even not just with um, like survivors, but families of victims and stuff now going to podcasters instead of the media because the police have let them down and they need someone with boots on the ground that has the gumption to really dig into their story the way it should be. And I appreciate how you you interviewed not just obviously the families of the victims who were killed, but those who were impacted in a 
on his journey to becoming as brutal as he did, but the, the, his next door neighbor who had let him in for coffee. And then just to hear her say, kind of choke up, like, I never expected that that would be something that he did. And I thought it was incredibly powerful how you said, you know, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. They're very good at what they do. They're very, uh, they're crafty, skillful. And so don't feel guilty that you, and, and I think that telling your story and especially to someone who's as a seasoned journalist, like you are a storyteller in the true crime space where you've seen uh, run the gamut, all these different cases. And you can say from a position of authority, you did nothing wrong. Mm. You were being a good neighbor and you let your neighbor in. You had no idea that he was secretly it's sneaking. It's like what in. you always say of, um, what, what's your thing you say about snakes? <laughs> <laughs> I used to be, I've worked with legal aid and I worked with um, older adults, so over 65 victims of crime. And you have a really tough time whenever they, they don't want to tell authorities, police, anybody what happened, or even their adult kids because they're ashamed. Mm -hmm. And they think, oh, I'm such an idiot. I'm so stupid. I shouldn't have gotten scammed. I shouldn't have fallen for this. And I was like, if you're walking, if you're out for a hike and a snake jumps out and bites you, you didn't do anything wrong. That's what snakes do. They jump out and bite. Mm -hmm. And that's the same with the people that you interview that had these near misses with them or had these, you know, encounters that were dramatic and violent, but they weren't home, you know, at the time, like with Donna. But they didn't do anything wrong. She did nothing wrong. She mm -hmm. was just giving her baby a bath and going to hang out with her husband. So I think it's really powerful what you do. So mm -hmm. we definitely appreciate that. Thank you. I think it's there's a great irony where so many people over the years have come up to me at author talks and they'll say, I feel really guilty because normally I would uh, give Natalie a lift home, but I didn't, I, you know, that day I got caught up and it just occurred mm -hmm. to me one day, like a rock in the head, it occurred to me that, that people in the community, everybody feels guilt apart mm -hmm. from the one that should. And I think yeah, this right. is what telling your story wow. gets to do is that it, you get to say you were just being you and you, you did do nothing wrong. And I think also we're not designed to pick psychopaths. I think I, I certainly, even yeah. though I'm a true crime author, I move through my world with great compassion and humanity and I don't disbelieve people. And if someone comes up mm -hmm. to me and says, hey, this is my story, I don't say, is it? You know, we are not designed <laughs> right. as humans to say, um, I've written a lot about child sexual abuse and the parents that have said to me, you know, he told me that he'd lost his two sons in an accident and I felt so sorry for him and I let him take my son's camping. And of course, no mm. sons, no history. Yeah. He's a pedophile. Yeah. And I said to them, yeah. I said to this mother once, I said, but you're never going to say, if someone tells you that they've lost their two children in a car accident, you're never going to go prove it. Right. We are not, right? we're not designed to be manipulated because most people take things on face value. And then once they mm -hmm. get caught and look back and they're beating themselves up over it. But really what you wouldn't have done it any differently if it happened again. Right. So, no. And predators know that they prey on mm -hmm. people's vulnerabilities and emotions and they know no one would say, really prove it that your two sons were yeah. killed. You know, like it's just, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Of course. Yeah. He just wants to bond and reconnect, but it's all a scam and they didn't do anything wrong, but be a compassionate person themselves. Right. I, I, that was so, so powerful that what you said that we all feel guilty except the one that mm -hmm. should. Because even the police officer that you interviewed said, you know, when we had this odd thing happen with the, the cats that were attacked and, you know, I, sh I maybe I could have I could have predicted that he was going to. It's like you can't, you know, you can. We can't live our lives like no. that going what if, what if. But we definitely hear that in a lot of Freaky Friday stories that people submit of near misses and things like that. And we do try to say 
you've told your story, you got out of it. Don't feel bad. And for those who are listening, again, don't, this is their nature. The nature of a predator is to be a predator. Mm -hmm. And most people are not that way. There are certain people that are that way. And those certain people should not be let out of jail. Correct. And I think if we can learn from what happened, so the woman who wrote to Denya in prison and visited him, she sent me a message and she's listening to her episode and she said, I feel so stupid. And I said, no, you reached out to him in with compassion because Mm -hmm. you felt connected because you had a child who was transgender. And Mm -hmm. the minute that you, you visited him and got that sense that, okay, this isn't, he isn't what I thought he would be. And Mm -hmm. then you got out, you didn't go back, you stopped writing to him. And then you told the world your story and said, don't write to serial killers in prison. So I said to her, it's never about what we do. It's about what we learn from it and then how we apply it. Mm. And bad stuff happens all the time. But as a crime writer, I watch people say, how can I make this powerful as a learning tool, as a life lesson? And that's what counts. So I think if any Mm -hmm. of your listeners are feeling guilty about any peripheral encounter with a crime, just say to yourself, what am I doing today to learn from that? And that's all we can do. Right. If you know better, you do better. And we say it's a lesson learned. And it's if you can share it with other people, maybe you can help them from going through something similar. Or if they have gone through it, they at least know they're not alone. So yeah. that is the power of the stories that yes, we tell. Beautifully put. And we are very excited to hear your other story that you have prepared for us today, your own Freaky Friday story. So... Well, my Freaky Friday story, and I've been listening to uh, your Freaky Friday stories and they're awesome, but what I wanted to tell you was um, the the story that sort of led me into the Frankston case because as a crime writer, we have a whole different level of Freaky Fridays and um, Mm -hmm. and this one actually happened on a Friday, so that's even better. Oh. So when I was doing ride-alongs with the Frankston police writing stories, I was literally writing stories about a typical, um, we call it CIB, which is like community detective cases. And then I did a ride-along with the community policing squad and – And the night that I wanted to tell you about for my Freaky Friday story was that I was going to do a ride-along with the Frankston Police, just the general uniform division. And I was doing the ride-along with my next-door neighbour, Mick, who was um, a sergeant at Frankston. And so we drove there together and we pulled up out the back of the police station. And in those days, everybody smoked. I don't know what whether it was like that in 30 years ago in the US, but everybody smoked. There was oh, yeah, a whole was. line of smokers uh, lined up outside the back door of the police. And as we're walking past this line of smokers, one of them uh, said to Mick, um, he said, another girl's gone missing. And mm. there was just this pall of absolute, um, it was like the life had been sucked out of the whole police station because there ha- there were th- 200 extra police that had flooded into this little community and uh, to try and catch the serial killer and keep women safe. And there was this feeling like right under our noses, he's just taken another mm-hmm. one. And I remember my next door neighbour uh, said, what kind of girl was she? And as a feminist, 
that's the question of it shouldn't matter. Um, but mm-hmm. but I understood from an investigative point of view because if it's a, a kind of a naughty kid or um, that, that may not come home, but they just, the answer was not a school kid. And so there was just this feeling of absolute uh, horror that this girl had gone missing. And then by the time we got into the police station building, um, someone had come down, a man had come down from upstairs where all the bosses were, and he just looked at my next-door neighbour and he said, they found her and she's dead. Wow. And again, there was it's really hard to explain the lack of, it, it was like there was no emotion left. It, it had all been, um, there was no expression. It was just they found her and she's dead. There was this sense of disbelief. And so as a true crime writer, I got caught up in, like my next-door neighbour said to me, we're all going there. And uh, you've got permission to be with me, so just get in the back seat and just keep your head down. And so I felt like this moment in history that I was um, in the back of a police car heading to the scene of the final murder of the serial killer victim. And while, of course, I didn't get out of the car once I was at, Natalie, the third victim, was killed on a bike track. So uh, it was a track uh, between two golf courses and it had that cyclone wire fence and uh, the serial killer had cut holes in it so that when he saw her approaching the bike track, just walking home from school, he went up first and ducked in through a hole so that when he uh, when she walked past him right in the middle of this very, uh, you know, tracks that would have had a lot of kids um, maybe half an hour later, but she'd left school a bit earlier and then he jumped out and cornered her. And so I was in a police car parked at the end of the track and I remember just thinking, um, I have to write this book. I have to, uh, I'm here. And what I could see outside the window was this, the police helicopter um hovering above where she lay on the bike track and shining. It's called the night sun, you know, the big powerful light and shining that down on what I knew was the scene of a serial murder. And so I I guess as a as a crime writer, that's my Freaky Friday story that actually happened on a Friday that I had this right. encounter with the, this serial killer that I ended up and, and 30 years later I'm still writing about it. So um it's. I, I think that was my freakiest Friday story that I had. That's that's a pretty freaky Friday story. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's just to even hear you talk about it now. You, I can feel your emotion of like pulling up and just the eeriness, the emptiness. You know that that's someone's daughter. They're mm-hmm. they've gotten the worst call of their lives. You know, I mean to have all of that energy in one place to to be compelled to write the book and then be so successful kudos do you feel like i mean we all i think we if you feel like you're doing the job that you're supposed to be doing you feel like it's divinely inspired but at the time did you have this sense of oh this will be a defining moment in my career or even just a feeling of i feel compelled that now that i've witnessed something that is so heart-wrenching that I was chosen in a way that I I now have that burden to tell this story or where at the time you were you just you know just kind of take it one day at a time 
Look, I, I think um, I think my, one of my life mottos is that I love saying yes to things that I don't know how to do because mm. I trust myself as a learner and I trust that I have a basic skill set that I, I'll figure it out. So if I was ever going to embroider a pillow, it would have I'll figure it out written on it. And <laughs> what happened with this case was that I knew that um, I've I've always felt first and foremost the huge responsibility that I have as the storyteller and I knew that for this case I would have to approach families and that terrified me because I was so worried about intruding on grief and I was young I was in I was maybe 20 maybe 27 when this happened and I I was I was young and I didn't have that life experience. And what ended up happening is when I did write letters, because there was no email in those days, there was no uh, internet. So I I literally wrote letters to all the families and said, look, I really want to honour your daughter or your sister or your mother and I want to... Um, I, I want to tell their story because I think it's so important that that her story is told, not just killer, killer, killer. And uh, yes. they all reached out and said, yeah, sure, we'll meet you. And and I had the most, it's, it sounds weird to describe it, but it is a blessed or it's an act of grace to sit with somebody in their grief. Mm. But it's not a grief conversation. There's a bit of grief in it in that their daughter or sister or whatever died. But mostly it's a conversation about life and it's a, it's a conversation mm. about, oh, I'll never forget the time she. And then mm-hmm. it's funny and you'll find yourself laughing. And I know that and I walk away with the responsibility of I have to take their words and I have to make this girl come alive. I have to show who she was, not in her dying moments. I have to show who she was in her living moments. And so I think not the burden because that's the wrong word because burden sounds negative but i think the 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 burden of having to do that always trumped everything else and it was this is my this is my um this is my task and you said responsibility. I think that's a much better word for it, that when you're given that story, you have a responsibility. And we always say, Christy especially will say, people are more than the last day of their life than the worst mm-hmm. thing that ever happened to them. And so we try to take the same tack when we tell stories. And so you feel that responsibility that this was a whole person. This wasn't just a singular event that's, you know, entertainment for people. It is a story. And what are we going to learn from the story? And like with the Frankston murders, what are we going to do now that we know this story that it's been brought back to the public consciousness? What are you listener going to do? Are you going to make some phone calls and say, Hey, we want criminal justice reform or we specifically this case. So I think that that's a beautiful cycle that you can take grief from someone live with them, sit with them as they celebrate their loved one's life and then help bring that story to others and then help enact change. It's a, Mm -hmm. it's a a beautiful career you've done. Yes. It's very exciting. Putting it like that, that it's, um, it's an honor to sit with someone in their grief is beautifully put. And I had never really thought of it like that, but you couldn't be more right to, and, and it is, there are moments of grief, but really you're talking about their loved one that they, you know, in, in their life. So there's an overbearing sadness, but for the most part, it comes from a place of just like, um, fondness. So, 
It really You've done does. A great job it really of does. Telling the victim stories. Yeah, I mm-hmm. um, I just, I just love it, and because I'm not a trained journalist, so my background is I'm an uh, at that time was an elementary school teacher. So by mm-hmm. day I would be with little children, and by night I might be riding in the police helicopter or doing a shift uh, with a serial killer, and it was so I had these two very, very different worlds. But I also wow, didn't. Very I didn't have that training. I suppose. I guess at journalist school they might say, "Don't get too close to the victims, and don't become friends mm. with them, and don't invite them to your thirtieth birthday, and they can help you cut their <laughs> cake." So I, I mean, I just did it like a normal person would do it. As a journalist, mm-hmm. I think people didn't. Uh, people never write stories and then show them to the people that they've interviewed. I always did that because I wanted them to know. Um, that I was representing their loved one in a way that they were happy with, and most people that I mean, I show every, I show my stuff to everybody. If they've helped me, I go here, read your chapter. Are you happy with that? And I find that that is such a level of trust just in doing that. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize until I met journalists that 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 wasn't a thing that you did. And I'm like, oh, I always do that. No one, hardly anyone, ever wants to change anything, but but everybody mm-hmm. goes into the publication phase, feeling like they know what's going to be in the book because they read their bit. Mm -hmm. And if they wanted to read all of it, I would go, sure, read all of it. So I I probably did things that are in the journalist don't do that list, but I think sometimes (laughs) naivety and if you lead with your heart and if you lead with a feeling of compassion, you'll just do stuff naturally that benefits everybody. Yeah, I think that's a a really wonderful thing that you come at it from a place of empathy, warmth, compassion, and not, well, the standards say I have to do this. So I'm not going to do, I'm not going to show this piece to that person. But instead, your integrity tells you, I sat with this grieving person, I held their hand, we cried together, I'm going to give them the respect and let them read this chapter. And I think you're right. Sometimes when you're coming into a field without that formal training, you're using other life skills that you've developed, you know, from being a teacher, there's mm-hmm. so many yeah. skills that, that are applicable because on the face, when you go, I was a kindergarten teacher by day and I was, you know, in police helicopters by night, but you there's a lot of problem solving skills, thinking on your feet, things yeah. that would, that extend, but compassion. then also the compassion, yeah. the caring and the like individual, I care about you as a person. What are we doing here sitting you and I? I think that that extended from, you know, from your teacher days into your newfound uh, uh, crime journalism (laughs) days. But even though it's not journalism, it's you're more of a true crime author. I saw you identify as like writer, podcaster. I know it's uh, we label ourselves things, but is that kind of your what you'd label it? I think a lot of writers have that difficulty with what what do I say that I am because being just saying I'm a right. writer um is is kind of pretentious and mm. <laughs> so for a long time it was just I was a teacher and I think over mm-hmm. the years and I, look I was very very quick to say I'm not an expert I'm a storyteller but I think that changed over time because I began to realise that even though I was a storyteller and I was telling other people's stories, that I was gaining wisdom along the way and I was identifying mm. patterns of behaviour. So when you interview somebody when um, they have suffered a, an abuse or, like I said before, they felt guilty about something, that you're able to kind of be that bee that's pollinating flower after flower and going, oh, the flower that I interviewed last week, they had 
said the same thing about guilt and here's what I can pass on from what they learned. And so I think after a while you start to own the wisdom that, you, that you've that you earned and I think that as women we always downplay what we do, don't we? Um, and in right. Australia uh, people, I, I don't know, People aren't really impressed. If 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 I would if someone says, "Oh, what do you do now?" I don't. I'm not a teacher anymore, so I have to say author or podcaster. And they mm-hmm. often won't ask any questions. They'll go, "Oh, that's nice." They, yeah. <laughs> so same. No follow up. Yeah. No. Same here. Yeah. So you're not going to get ever. You're not going to get a big head doing this, are you? Because right. Right. really, no. no one cares. And but I, I don't. Luckily, mm-hmm. our motivation is I'm just going to tell stories yeah. and I don't care who listens mm-hmm. and I don't care who reads my books. I'm never going to stop doing this. And I'm just lucky that I have found a formula that seems to work, even though I found it mm-hmm. without any consideration ever for what audiences wanted to listen to. Because I think that does your head in, right? If, if, yes. you, oh, if you say, I can't do this or I can't banter or I can't swear or I can't, you know, like your head's going to swirl around. And I think what mm-hmm. I did is what I've always done is I've been very compassionate to victims and survivors in my stories. And I just do that mm-hmm. in my podcasts and people will say, wow, I love the way that you bring the girls to life. And I'm like, I've always done that. Um, but they say I it so that. often right. that I wonder if maybe a lot of podcasts don't do that. But I'm never going to yeah. listen and go, oh, these that podcast is the yeah. recipe for my podcast because I just mm-hmm. tell the stories how I need to do in my heart and and just that people really enjoy listening to them or get something from them. That's the bonus. But I don't, you know, I, I kind of, I don't know, do, do you guys do this? You work in a bubble. You just do what you do yeah, right? no, and you thanks. flick it out into the world <laughs> and then you just crush <laughs> exactly. your fingers. Yeah, we say because we perform on stage, too, with comedy, uh, and there's obviously an audience there, and you get that immediate feedback. But we say all the time, like, we're just kind of screaming into the void, (laughs) and then, you know, until somebody reaches out um, via social media, email at a live show or something, you don't really have that connection, which social media has been such a great way for, like, our community to spring up and really stay connected. But I completely identify with not really knowing what to call yourself. Mm -hmm. People will ask me what I do and I never have felt comfortable saying I'm a comedian. And then I would say, well, I'm a podcaster, but then I'm not just a podcaster because, you know, I, I act, I write, we perform improv. So now I just say an entertainer and I'm always like, that sounds like a made up job. (laughs) (laughs) Like I work the circus and people are like, sure, you're an entertainer. But I, you know, and usually it's just like, okay. And I think it it stuns them with confusion (laughs) and then they don't ask any follow-up questions. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's a really, it's a weird thing to have to say, but we like you, our main focus is coming at every story from an ethical and compassionate place. And we also hear all the time and we've kind of developed this reputation, which we love of, of ethical storytelling in the true crime genre, because it is a hard thing to take what is the worst day of someone's life and talk about it in a way that doesn't seem sensational, or you're just doing it for likes and clicks. Mm -hmm. And we always, you know, tell the story from, we don't start it at 
and then they were murdered. We we talk about their backstory and their life and how they grew up. And so the victim's story is the at the forefront of it all. In the center. And I think mm-hmm. it comes from, you know, you're sitting there face to face with these families. We've both had jobs in our pre-podcast days. I was a lawyer. Christy spent time at working as a, at a domestic violence shelter. And so when you are sitting with somebody who has been through the worst day of their life, them telling it to you, but then being like what you said, what you can pass on to them, understanding that podcasting is a medium to do that on a large scale. Mm -hmm. It's a gift. Like we've been given a gift. You've been given a gift. And I think we all feel that what you said, responsibility, right? That we can tell these stories and hopefully people can, uh, can take something away from it. Yeah. You always say, cause she left a a cushy law job (laughs) to go full time with podcasting. But You've said many times that you sincerely feel like you can help more people in this position than you even could as a lawyer, because it is like, I mean, we're, you're in Australia, you know, like we, you can connect with people all over the country. We got an email from someone yesterday that I think is in Malaysia. And I was like, that's crazy that somebody in Malaysia Mm -hmm. is listening to our voice, but it's a, we feel honored and like we really, this is our calling to like tell stories and, and it's started off as like a podcast, but I think it's become more of this community where people do feel like they can, it's a safe space for everybody. I think true crime is that in general. Yeah. And have you found that with, I know you work with case file pretty closely. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that in Australia that there's a true crime podcasting community? You all have kind of the same directive. Um, I think that the 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 podcast community is is such an, an interesting phenomenon. And one thing that we had a podcast, I don't know whether you listened to a podcast called Teacher's Pet, but it was a, a yes. podcast, yeah, that came out of um a journalist who looked at a case from 35 years ago and went this there's a missing wife here there's a husband who moved a very very young girlfriend in as a replacement days after she went missing and said she joined a cult Uh, we don't really kind of have cults here in a big way but um and and he kind of looked into it and now the guy the 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 husband has been charged and found guilty of murdering the wife Mm -hmm. what what struck me with teacher's pet was that People didn't respond as observers, right? They, they're they not just sitting there going, we're going to listen to this. They respond as activists so that there's this mm-hmm. whole community sprung up from teachers' pets saying, let's buy the house, let's dig up the soft soil, let's um, demolish it and we'll find Lynette. And and they wow. were doing marches for Lynette, and they were um, they they it was a call to action for for a lot of people, and so mm-hmm. they listen as participants, not as observers. And when mm-hmm. Teacher's Pet came out, the first book that I ever wrote, uh, called The Phillip Island Murder, was on a similar missing wife thirty years ago, um, really kind of solved to the degree that the police were happy with it, but not solved to the degree that anyone else in the world was happy with. And so (laughs) that was the first natural podcast. But people were saying you should do Phillip Island because of Teacher's Pet, because Teacher's Pet has pushed this case forward. And so I, I... the case file host said, hey, do you know, make it with us. And I went, okay. Again, I did not know how to make a podcast. And... (laughs) 
what I did is I just rang people that I'd been in touch with for years and said, can I interview you? And they went, sure. And so I wrote the script. I recorded it with my niece at her podcast studio. And then she she stitched it all together because I don't have that skill. And I sent it to the case file host and I went, here's episode one. And he said to me much later, he said, I was waiting for you to ask us how to do it. And I thought, <laughs> I, I never would have, uh, I'll figure it out. You know, I never would have thought to ask him how to do it. Like I just kind of went, okay, how do you do this? All right, I'll, I uh-huh. think this is there how you, you do it. So it was it's your cross stitch fellow. I'll figure it out. <laughs> it, it was funny because uh, he he and then he played it. I think for his producer, and he said to me later, you know, I just put it on and said, "Listen to this." And the producer's like, "Oh, is this um is this one of ours? And do, who who is this? What what's the history?" He goes, "Just listen to it." And they both really <laughs> enjoyed that episode. And so I guess that extension from writer into storyteller with words, uh, spoken words rather than written words was a very natural progression for me, I found. Yeah. yeah. It's, and it's working great. So for our listeners, Frankston Burners podcast, what do you want them to know? Do they listen, subscribe, follow? Yeah, so all 11 yeah. episodes have been downloaded, mm-hmm. I think, on every platform. I, sh- I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm not technical, yeah. <laughs> but I think, you know, on Apple or, or Spotify or yeah. whatever. And, um, and so they can just click on episode one and listen to all 11 episodes. And I would recommend doing that. And make sure, listeners, if you click go on episode one, that you have time to listen to all of them because <laughs> you will not want to stop because it is such a compelling story. And for those in Australia, hopefully, have you seen any movement, any response from the government, from the parole board or anything? Are there any rumblings that the podcast coming out has made an impact just yet? Um, I'm going into Parliament House tomorrow in Melbourne uh, to talk to, uh, from the podcast, uh, the third victim, Natalie. She was going out with a young man Mm -hmm. at the time who ended up getting into politics and he is in our parliament. And so I'm going to go and talk to him tomorrow uh, and we're going to be interviewed by a journalist. So it really is... Um, it's gaining traction so quickly that that it's it's yeah. taken me by surprise, and I think it's making waves. That's amazing. We will follow this closely, and we hope that uh, something good comes out of this. There's been a lot of American podcasts that recently. You, you mentioned your own backyard um, with Kristen Smart and. Paul Flores was finally convicted of her murder and it took a podcaster just becoming interested in her story. He drove by the billboard every day because he grew up in the same town and now it's finally solved however many years later, but we can't wait to see what happens with this. You've been a phenomenal first guest for our first Freaky Friday interview. Your story was amazing. You're so, you have the most amazing voice. I would like for you to just tell me all my information. Uh, Anytime I need to be told something, I'll just send you a message if you could send it back. Uh, But where can people find you? Um, What what are your social handles and everything? Oh, goodness me. Um, Twitter. I have 800 followers, so that's probably why I don't know my social handle by. I think it's, <laughs> no I think it's Vicky Petraitis. I, just if you search that on Twitter, I'll come up. And okay, I have a sure. Facebook author page and okay. it's just Vicky Petraitis author page. So it's and Instagram. I think it's Vicky Petraitis. I don't have a tag that's like <laughs> well, the writer no or anything like that. So if you just search my name, it'll come up. 
Yes. For sure. And we'll link you in the show notes and everything sure. as well. Um, so listen to the Frankston Murders podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you so much, Vicki, for being with us today. Thank you so much. It's been lovely to meet you. You as well. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Vicki, for spending this time with us. You were a delight and we can't wait to work with you again in the future. And thank you so much to everyone else for sending in your Freaky Friday stories. If you have an odd but true story, maybe you've encountered Bigfoot, you've seen a UFO, you had a brush with true crime, or you felt the presence of an otherworldly being, send them in at SinisterHood.com slash Freaky Friday. In case you haven't heard, we are on tour and our tickets are on sale now. We're coming to Denver, Salt Lake, Austin, and Houston. And we're also going to be in L.A., San Francisco, Boston, New York, Washington, D.C., Detroit, Columbus, and Pittsburgh. Head to SinisterHood.com slash live shows. All tickets except Pittsburgh is on sale right now. Pittsburgh, we're waiting for the ticket link. But if you are a member of our Patreon, you'll get an email and a Patreon post. And you'll get 24-hour first dibs access to the Pittsburgh tickets before they go on sale. And then we'll post on social media and the general public. So SinisterHood.com slash live shows. And we're going to come hang out and bring our full moon energy tour to y'all. Yes. And the VIP goes fast. So when you get that Pittsburgh alert, I would jump on it. It's we're doing a 45 minute post-show Q and a, I'm sure McGruff is going to be involved (laughs) (laughs) where we talk about whatever y'all want. Maybe stuff that we didn't bring up in the show other conspiracy theories that we're into. Uh, Last time we showed just home videos, a pedal. Oh, I do have a video I took on the camping trip of Ella explaining to me what a planet is, which is pretty great. And a lot of footage of the amazing telescopes. So we got to look through to look at the moon. It was the most up close I've ever seen the moon. So Maybe sure. that's what gets shown, you know, it's whatever y'all want. Yeah. It's like, it's kind of like our Patreon Q and a, where it's just ask us anything for 45 minutes. We get you all close to the front of the stage and just talk and hang out. And you also get a signed poster as part of it. But like Christy said, they're going soon. So you want to be on the Patreon or go check for tickets right now for all dates, times to get your tickets before they're gone. Sinisterhood.com slash live shows. We also want to talk about a cause that's very special to our hearts. For the second year in a row, we have created a team for the NAMI North Texas Walk, supporting mental health for all. NAMI is the nation's largest grassroots mental health organization dedicated to improving the lives of individuals and families affected by mental illness. NAMI Walks promotes awareness of mental health, raises funds for NAMI's free top-rated programs, and builds community by letting people know that they are not alone. The NAMI North Texas Walk is Saturday, May 6th at Riders Field in Frisco, Texas. So we have a team. You can join our team or donate at Sinisterhood.com slash NAMI. That's Sinisterhood.com slash N-A-M-I. Yes, you don't even have to be local to support. You can donate from afar. And if you're local, you could participate in the walk. And there's also walks going on all across the country. This is Mm -hmm. our local North Texas chapter. But going on the NAMI website, you can see if there's a walk close to you. Maybe you want to create a team in your own hometown. So we support that as well. It's Sinisterhood.com slash NAMI. We love providing Sinisterhood to you at no cost, so if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. 
As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the ruling the airwaves and getting into it tiers, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, and patron-exclusive video and audio content, including Am I the Asshole, Relationship Advice, Judge Christie, Dear Sinister, True Crime Headlines, and more. And patrons in the Getting Into It tier are also able to vote on a bonus content segment each month they would like to see us live stream. Your Honor, I have your docket prepared for this week's Judge Christie in court. I'm very excited, and I have my robe and gavels, plural. Oh, two of them. You also have the fun perk of access to our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post adorable pictures of your pets. We hop on occasionally, and we host monthly Q&As on Crowdcast, where you can ask us all your burning questions. Heather, when is this month's Q&A? This month's Q&A is Wednesday, April 26th at 8 p.m., and this month's bonus content live stream is Sunday, April 30th at 8 p.m. Both are central time. Head to uh, the pin post at the top of Patreon, and you can check the Crowdcast link and register for both. For our patrons not in the U.S., you have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of the conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available. Those that select this option will be rewarded with a free month of membership. For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. If you want to get some cool swag like t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on Shop on the top banner. You can support the show fast, easy, and at no cost to you by rating, reviewing, and following on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Speaking of reviews, you can easily leave one by going to Sinisterhood.com slash reviews. Yours may even be featured on our social media. Have a friend who you think would like us? You can easily share any episode with them by clicking the three dots in the top right corner. You can also share topic-based playlists from Spotify by visiting Sinisterhood.com slash playlists. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod. Like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. You can also head to YouTube and TikTok where you can see some wonderful videos of McGruff the Crime Dog uh, <laughs> at Sinisterhood Podcast on both of those. Uh, what are they called? Websites? Platforms? That's the one. <laughs> and then speaking of platforms, if you want to go uh, to Cameo.com slash Sinisterhood and find us on Cameo, we can do personalized video shout outs for you. We can say happy birthday, happy anniversary. I love you. And uh, whatever you want, just tell, put it in the box. We'll do it. You get the video and you can send it as a, a fun, fast, easy gift. And it, uh, it helps us connect with you. So we love it. Mm -hmm. Go to Cameo.com slash Sinisterhood. Even a gift to yourself. We get a lot where it's like, right? I just need a pep talk. Yeah. And we love giving them. So absolutely. Christy, where are you at on the computer? I am on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace and Twitter and TikTok at Christy or GTFO. Heather? I am on Instagram and TikTok at Heather versus the world and on Twitter at MCK versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Sin.